This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Good evening, everybody. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and Salut Babette. Tonight's show is about trees, how clearing them adds to global warming and how growing them has a cooling effect. And it draws down carbon. It should be so simple. Now, I'd like to dedicate this show to Wangari Matai from Kenya. She started the Green Belt Movement, planting millions of trees on degraded land, restoring the water catchment and providing shade for cattle, giving fruit and firewood. But now we have to look back on that effort as sequestering carbon. Wangari Matai got the Nobel Prize. And here's what she says to us. She says, it is one thing to understand the issues. It is quite another to do something about them. But I've always been interested in finding solutions. And that is really the spirit of Beyond Zero Emissions. We're all into solutions. So far, the Greenbelt Movement has planted 51 million trees in Kenya. So now back to Australia. We are expecting a lot of our land to feed us, to feed livestock, to fuel cars and to draw down carbon. And the carbon is not just, we see it on TV as smokestacks, you know, coal-fired power stations and uh, the emissions from cars. But it's not just that image. The agricultural industry in Australia is responsible for around half our emissions over the coming two decades. And that is if we count in land clearing, and 90% of that is for the Northern Ranges cattle grazing. We talked about methane last week and we're going to talk again to the Beyond Zero Emissions uh, researcher on the land use plan, Gerard Wedderburn Bishop, about how much land needs to be reforested. We'll also talk to a forestry expert in Professor Brett Bryan from Deakin University. He'll talk about how CSIRO scenarios have shown how we can lower emissions through forest drawdown. But... The biggest obstacle in our path is weak land-clearing laws. This is cancelling out, all the land-clearing is cancelling out the benefits of any carbon sequestered as New South Wales and Queensland uh, state governments are failing to restrain land-clearing mostly for livestock, livestock and for new mines. We'll talk to a filmmaker about this. His name's Gregory Miller, and his film is on next Saturday at Acme. If you want to go, it's at 4 p.m. Gregory's film is called Cultivating Murder. So we'll talk to him around 5.30, so hang in for that. That'll be about the land clearing, but now we're going to talk about forests. Our first guest is uh, Professor Brett Bryan. He's Professor of Global Change, Environment and Society at Deakin University and I first heard about his work at CRSIRO where they found a great potential for carbon sinks in Australia. Are you there, Professor Bryan? Yes, hi Vivian. Thanks for having me on the program. Well, I'm delighted to meet you. I've been reading your papers over the weekend and they're way above my head, really. They're so detailed and they sound rather brilliant but a huge amount of work's gone into them and um, I'd like to... This is sort of really introductory in a way for our listeners, so this is for the general public. Um, tell us about what you found in those scenarios for land management. Uh, what were the best ones with climate change in mind? Uh, so we uh, undertook um, a 
pretty big analysis for Australia's agricultural land. So that stretches from northern Queensland right around to southwest Western Australia. So all the cleared land that's used for cropping and grazing. So not not the north at this stage. Uh, but we looked at uh, Australian agriculture and the uh, a number of other potential land uses that could compete with Australian agriculture. So there's 24 different types of cropping and grazing. And uh, what land uses could compete with these uh, with, with agriculture in the future if there were changes in uh, economic and environmental circumstances like climate change, a carbon price, uh, changes in energy price and oil and, and so on. And uh, of course we looked over um, some uh, what we call global outlooks. So these are future pathways for the world, whether it's a high climate change scenario right through to um, a two degree sort of um, strong global emissions abatement efforts where you've mm. got a high price on carbon. And we found that the degree of land use change from these new land uses, these are things like planting carbon forests, so single species that grow fast and store a lot of carbon as quick as possible, make you as much money out of the carbon price as possible, or environmental plantings, which are uh, local native species that help um, plants and animals and provide habitat for the ecology of the regions, um, and right through to biofuels and bioenergy, so that's um, growing wheat and, and trees to produce um, transport fuel or electricity. And so the future land uses, uh, so how these new land uses compete with agriculture, they look very different depending on the settings that we put into the model. So we found that where there was a high carbon price, that trees actually become much more profitable particularly carbon plantings because they grow faster and store a lot of carbon, um, but also environmental plantings. While they didn't make you as much money, you get the co-benefit of having um, uh, nature conservation as well, and we all know that uh, that's badly needed in Australian landscapes to help provide uh, and restore habitat for native species. So where there's a high carbon price, these reforestation-based land uses became profitable. In fact, in some areas, much, much more profitable than existing agriculture, particularly beef grazing. So in some areas where beef grazing might make currently uh, $50 or $100 per hectare per year, we found that under these strong carbon prices needed to achieve um, a climate change abatement, um, that you were getting uh, you know, upwards of hundreds, two, three, four, five hundred dollars and more per hectare return, that's profit to farmers from growing trees instead of grazing cattle. So these are potentially transformational changes in the economics of how we use land in Australia. Well, yes, and what has been the response so far from the cattle industry, for example, and from the government? Um, well, these were hypothetical scenarios, if you mm. like. So we're, we're looking at um, situations which don't currently occur. So uh, potential policy options uh, going out into 2050. So they're long-term uh, uh, scenarios. And we've had interest from um, the sheep industry, uh, particularly in, in South Australia, about um, futures uh, for their their uh, members of the sheep, sheep industry and sheep graziers. Um, interest from uh, Environment Department uh, in Canberra and uh, uh, it, it, we contributed to um, Victorian government's 
um, uh, carbon policies, the South Australian um, development of South Australia's uh, carbon neutral Adelaide and mm. other policies. So um, policy makers and decision makers are, are starting to listen uh, to the, what's, what's possible in our lands. All right. Well, the, I dedicated this program to Wangari Mathai, and she said if you destroy the forests, then the rivers will stop flowing, the rains will become irregular, and the crops will fail. Could you just tell us the connection between reforestation and rainfall? Um, so where we have more trees, that obviously... Um, soaks up a lot more sunlight, uh, emits the, 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 the trees, um, evaporate a lot more of the rainfall into clouds and it increases the water cycle. So you get water flowing um, through the water cycle much much more than when there's just uh, pastures or crops. So trees actually use a lot more water than pastures or crops. So if that, that was one shortcoming of our um, our um, reforestation scenarios is that where you get large areas of plantations, they'll actually use a lot more water than what's there originally. So we really need to carefully manage uh, our water resources uh, if we go down these paths of, of um, large-scale reforestation. Mm. So there's not just benefits and co-benefits, say, for carbon sequestration and biodiversity, but there can also be trade-offs. So uh, water is one thing, so we need to carefully manage water and also agricultural production. Everyone loves eating. And so where we turn agriculture over into planting trees, then we uh, have a, um, a decrease in supply of um, uh, agricultural productions, crops and, and meat and so on. So we need to deal carefully with those trade-offs as well as all the benefits. Yeah, well, um, I don't think carbon sinks need to really lock up land, do they? I've done a bit of reading around this and I wondered what the best examples you've seen of, for example, agroforestry or silviculture, where the crops and the livestock are inter integrated with forestry. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and some of our work at um, very high resolution uh, shows that um, in lots of farms, there are areas on the farm which don't make the farmers a lot of money. In fact, they cost money because the farmer... Um, you know, plants plants crops and and spends money in diesel and nitrogen and so on to to plant the crop, but doesn't get a high return. So, certain areas along creeks and and in poorer soils and uh, perhaps crests of dunes and things are, 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 might be less profitable. And so, if we're working in a high resolution, we can actually target say ten percent of farms with reforestation, and it could actually save farmers money. Uh, because they're not making that loss on um, those particular areas of the farm. That would be a fantastic service if farmers could just, um, you know, get a, a message from you about where to plant and what to plant, and, and just uh, then I would I would hope some incentives also to do some fencing and, you know, the 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 investment that they're going to have to put, but just to make that um, very tailor made to their farm rather than just hoping for the best. Yeah, look, I think a lot of farmers already know um, their, their farms and their land very intimately and, and know where these areas are, and, and many are already doing this, um, getting help from um, places like Landcare and, and, and so on, where which subsidise, um, you know, give, give them um, 
seedlings and uh, help yeah. with fencing costs and so on. So I think that is already happening, but um, if we're serious about making a difference, um, then that uh, needs to be uh, you know, a lot more effort needs to go in. Yeah, well, as I said at the head of the program, land clearing's sort of our enemy in this space, but um, I, I feel very uh, positive when I read your stuff, and, and you said at one stage with global incentives, I imagine that's a sort of carbon price from the international scene, uh, global incentives, land sector abatement in Australia could exceed our total greenhouse gas emissions over 20 years. How do you see this happening, 20 years as a short term? Well, that's uh, the, some of the most extreme scenarios where we've got by by 2050 uh, in order to achieve the um, amount of um, carbon emissions abatement. Yeah. It actually costs quite a bit of money. So well, that's what I was looking at. That, that's what I want the to see. The carbon price that the uh, global models tell us will be required to achieve that is increases out to 2050 and by 2050 it's in you know well over 100 up to 200 dollars per ton of carbon so at that price which very lucrative uh, amounts of uh, money for carbon per ton uh, it becomes very profitable hmm. well the current carbon abatement schemes that we've got in australia have cost so far over two billion dollars i've read and it's from the emissions reduction fund but they have not been predominantly been paying for tree planting. And I think the public was fondly imagining that we'd offset our emissions by this massive planting, but it's mostly been for savannah, no, savannah burning in the cool season and I think uh, not avoiding deforestation. So what's happened? Well, these kinds of schemes are, are try and target the most cost-effective way of getting carbon out of the atmosphere and into a more benign form like trees or... or, or uh, funding energy efficiency, so not emitting it in the first place. And so across the whole economy, if we think about what the most uh, cheapest way per tonne of carbon to uh, uh, stop emissions, uh, well, we go through all those options, things like um, avoiding methane emissions from rubbish tips and um, uh, emissions, um, energy efficiency and so on. Those things can actually be cheaper uh, to abate emissions. Uh, But the thing is, we need a lot of emissions abatement. So what we do is go up up the the slope into the more uh, costly per tonne of carbon actions across the economy and eventually we get to uh, sort of land use actions and reforestations where, where it becomes um, cost effective at a certain price uh, to, start to, to store carbon in trees rather than um, uh, emitting it into the atmosphere. All right. Well, some of your scenarios show regional transformation in areas where farmers are struggling now with debt and declining terms of trade, and it's making farming a misery. I've heard a lot of small farmers are being just swallowed up by these big agribusinesses because it's so hard. So I wonder how will the remaining, um, how could those marginal lands become both more profitable and a benefit to the climate? All depends on the on the carbon price. Uh, so, uh, where we um, our model says that certain carbon prices or, or other uh, economic and environmental conditions that we can make more money out of things like um, planting trees, mm. uh, um, it, you know that. Um, economics says that um, you know that makes sense to do. So if you can make more money doing something else on your land than farming, then uh, uh, you know you probably 
uh, would find sense and in the economic bottom line and, and go ahead and do it. The thing with um, planting trees and and getting that renewed income, so what they're doing is switching from uh, a land use that's more profitable. Farmers are actually mm-hmm. making more money. In fact, in some cases, a lot more money. So it's totally reversed the century-long cost price um, the decline that farmers have been um, are suffering from um, and it's brought uh, new money into regions uh, and so um, that would help regional economies right throughout um, uh, industry so there'd be new industries spring up to help large-scale plantings from fencing and um, uh, planting contractors and carbon brokers and and uh, monitoring and all sorts of things uh, would spring up in the in regions to help support this this new industry that's that's um, uh, providing a, a new service yeah. to um, society and, and the, the planet well yes I interviewed a farmer at Crookwell in New South Wales once and he had two wind turbines on his farm and he also was a firefighter and he said the the forestry roads that had been put in to look after the wind turbines were great for firefighters but also those two turbines had paid for him to destock you know he got rid of quite a lot of his livestock and he was able to revegetate which he'd been dreaming of doing for many years but he hadn't been able to afford it and now he could so that's another that's a nice story. Um, look, lots of landholders that get a lot of other benefits other than economic benefits. So we start to see frogs coming back into rivers. We start to see birds that we haven't seen for generations coming coming back, and that uh, gives people uh, yeah, other values and, mm. and benefits from from restoring their land. The other thing to think of is uh, the average age of the Australian farmers is in the mid fifties and increasing. So you know people are getting older. The physical work of farming is being not so attractive to them and if they can make you know quite a bit more money out of their land by planting some trees and sitting back and watching them grow well you know all power to them right well the last question um is about population a lot of people say to me look it's all hopeless it's futile because we're going to have to feed nine billion people in the near future and in your scenarios, you describe a big increase in carbon planting, you know, those extreme scenarios, which I'm, they're the ones I'm interested in. But I wonder how will the remaining land continue to produce enough food and fibre for that increased population? Well, in fact, the way it works and the way the economics of land use change works is that when something, uh, a new land use option becomes um, more viable economically, so it makes more profit than what you do now, the first places to change over, the theory says, are those that make the least money out of agriculture. So these are places that have lower stocking rates, that don't produce as much per tonne of wheat or barley or whatever it might be. So these are the areas that are more marginal. They tend to shift first and the higher producing areas are also the most profitable. So they tend to change over to a new land use last. They stay in agriculture. And so the actual net effect on reducing food supply through agriculture is very minor because of that um, targeting of the least productive areas first. That's wonderful. Well, thank you very much, um, Professor Brian. I I would like you to tell the listeners what what are the, some of the um, l- papers you've produced, and where can they go to find to read your work? Um, we've 
got a number of papers that uh, have just come out. You can uh, check out my ResearchGate site or my Google Scholar site. So if you just search for my name under Google, that's uh, brett.brian, B-R-E-T-T-B-R-Y-A-N. Search for that under Google. You'll find my Google Scholar site or ResearchGate, and you can read a lot of the papers follow okay. the links. All right. Well, I, I found them very hard to read. I suppose that's that's in that academic world you are. That's how one has to present information. But you've done us a great service to sort of simplify it for everyone to get to the first step of understanding all this. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Vivian. Thank you. So that was Professor Brett Bryan, and he's. Um, I hope some of you will read his papers. I did when I did read them; found them very interesting. So we'll have a small break, and then we're going to talk to Gerard Wedderburn Bishop. Radiothon is almost here, and in 2017, 3CR is Radio for Change. From June the 5th to the 18th, we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call 03 9419 8377. Or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR, Radio for Change. listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show and readers before uh, listeners before we, we go on with Gerard Rezaburn Bishop that was all about Radiothon that maracas and samba dancing you might have missed the message please support Radiothon and we're going to be asking you for donations on the 12th of June that's our Radiothon show and uh, this is all about uh, supporting the station that's bringing you this fabulous uh, program right now so uh, Gerard are you there? Yes, yes, Vivian. I'm glad to hear your voice. Um, Gerard Wedderburn Bishop is an author of the Beyond Zero Emissions Land Use Report, and he has witnessed firsthand much of the land clearing that is still going on in Queensland. So I think this is one of the, when I've talked to Gerard, this is one of the things that's marked his life. Is that true, Gerard? Yeah, that's right. Uh, for my last 20 odd years in Queensland State Government, my team was responsible for mapping the deforestation and uh, the vegetation cover of Queensland. So we saw a lot of miles of uh, trees uh, uh, that have been uh, pulled down, as they were pulled, as they call yeah. it. 
with a yeah. chain between two bulldozers. Yes, that's right. We, we in Australia perfected that method and now it's being used with great effect in, uh, in southern Brazil. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, that precious Brazilian Amazon forest. Look, Jared, we've just heard from Professor Brian about the potential to sequester carbon. Would you like to comment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Professor Brian and his colleagues have done a marvellous job uh, looking at the uh, sequestration potential uh, across Australia. Um, and it's brilliant. You know, they looked at it against the sustainable development goals and, and other things like he was talking about, like impacts on biodiversity and water cycles and so on. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's incredibly good. That modelling does rely totally on carbon price. So um, what I guess we're all hoping for is a carbon price that will support that. Okay, well, last week we talked about reducing methane from livestock and our CSIRO guest there, he didn't seem to agree with Beyond Zero's finding that about 50% of Australia's emissions come from the land sector. Could you speak to that, explain what the difference is between your, you know, there's the national uh, um, accounting and BZE's research findings? Yeah, no, look, um, there, there are a lot of misconceptions about that. Um, the, the land use report, uh, and, and by the way, methane has now been found to be such a, a nasty gas that uh, if we stopped our CO2 emissions today, the methane alone is going to push us past dangerous warming, past two degrees warming. Mm-hmm. So it's something we've got to focus on. But the it, it, greenhouse gases are really interesting, and the way we compare them is, is with a, 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 an element called the global warming potential. And you can look at that global warming potential over any time frame you want, you choose. And the IPCC reported over 100 years. That's their standard reporting time frame. But they also give um, uh, figures, global warming potentials, for other time frames as well, like 20 years, 500 years. And what the... Landis report did was it looked at okay well what is going to be the impact of our emissions in Australia this year over the coming two decades over 20 years rather than the uh, 100 years as as convention dictates and we came up with some amazing results um, the the I, I guess the, the big thing that, that we were gobsmacked about yeah. was that, that the short-term gases, and methane's gone in about 10 years, yeah. whereas, um, actually, I'll just give you a little bit on carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide should actually be treated like two gases. The first is that it's half gone in about 30 years, and then it's got this nasty long tail so that after a 1,000 years, you've still got about 20% of the original emission. So it's got this nasty long tail, but it, it, it's half disappeared out of the atmosphere and mostly into the ocean uh, within 30 years. But methane goes in about 10 years and the other short-term gases go in days and weeks. So um, we, we tended to concentrate on the long-term gases. Go but back to when you were gobsmacked. What, what happened then? <laughs> okay. Well, um, we, we, several things popped out of the land use plan that just floored us. The first one was that even looking at 100-year accounting, standard accounting, the biggest land, land use, uh, the biggest agricultural emission wasn't even included in agriculture, and that is deforestation. It's included in the land use, land use change category, and it's done as a net accounting. In other words, the regrowth that's happening on land elsewhere is balanced against the de- uh, deforestation that's happening on 
uh, agricultural land. Mm. And, and so, in other words, the, the biggest emission was not even counted in ag- agricultural emission, was not even counted in agriculture. Well, Secondly, how, how do you get emissions from land clearing? Okay, well, um, if you clear the land, um, mostly they, they, it's open forest up there, it's uh, brigalow, it's mulga, it's open woodland, and they bulldoze it together um, and they burn it or they just flatten it and leave it on the ground. And what happens is the termites go to work on it and um, decomposition happens and that methane is, is uh, that, that, that CO2 is then yeah. released. Okay. Um, the CO2 that was in the ground in the form of roots and, and other biomatter, mm. that's also steadily over a period of 30 years or so, it decreases until it becomes uh, uh, grassland carbon. Yeah. Um, and, and it reaches a fairly steady state, but that happens over decades. Okay. So that's how that carbon is released. It, it, not even the timber's not even used; it's just bulldozed and burned. Mm. So um, it's, it's a bit of a tragedy from that respect. But um, okay, the other the other thing that really amazed us was that there are certain emissions in Australia that are, are measured by the Greenhouse Office or Department of Energy yeah. Environment but they're not included in the national inventory. In fact, they're not included in any national inventory, just by convention, and that is carbon monoxide from incomplete combustion, and and Australia's biggest source of that is our um, pasture maintenance fires in the north, in the far north. So this savannah burning that's happening for, for grazing pastures in the north produces a whole lot of carbon monoxide, and the, when, when carbon monoxide mixes with these other gases, it forms tropospheric ozone. In other words, ozone up in the stratosphere is brilliant. Ozone at ground level is a really bad greenhouse gas. Yeah. So, so um, that was another thing that was not even counted in any inventory. Well, so how we, could they have got it so wrong? Well, it's, uh, when the, way back when they decided on these things, was, was about three decades ago, they just made the decision, look, it's too hard, it's, it's short-term, it's, uh, you know, we, we, it's, it, the error bars are too big, so let's just leave it out. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, but the, the thing is that we, we added it in. <laughs> and, and then we computed it, and then we recalculated it over 20 years rather than 100 yeah. years. And we did that, and we found that if you include the lost short-term emissions and you do it over 20 years, uh, agriculture actually produces 54% of Australia's emissions, so it's by far the biggest, but over 20 years. Mm. Now, the, the danger is is that stinging the tail of the carbon monoxide way out to a, a thousand years yeah. plus. Yeah. So, so that's the danger. Well, but, I don't think the, the listeners are going to have heard this story from anywhere else, Gerard. I don't read this in the Good Weekend or anywhere. <laughs> well, the ABC Radio National doesn't tell me this information. Yeah. What's happening? No, that's right. And, and it also comes back to uh, methane. The, the power of methane is unbelievable. And there's been some work produced um, from Sweden, a group of uh, researchers there, uh, just a couple of months ago, produced a, uh, a, um, uh, a paper that looked at the, the different diets and what that's going to mean on... Um, uh, on, on global emissions and the cost of abatement. And they looked at a vegan diet and they looked at a no-ruminant diet, in other words, no red meat, mm. and they looked at business as usual and they found that uh, vegan and, and, and ruminant, and sorry, and no-ruminant, yeah. <laughs> no red meat, were almost the same 
in that they cut the uh, global warming by about half a degree into the uh, coming decades, mm. coming 100 years, and they also cut the price of uh, the cost of, of uh, mitigation by about uh, 25%. They cut it down by half a percentage of the global GDP. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the power of methane is, and this is not even looking at deforestation, etc. Mm. It's just looking at uh, basically the methane from ruminants. Mm. So, so, so these things are very strong. And, and can I... Uh, and, and, and hang on, just for the listeners, that we're talking about land clearing and reforestation today. So the, the reason you're talking about methane and cutting down on the red meat diet is because we're clearing worldwide, we're clearing a huge amount of land for that. Yeah. That's yeah, that's right. right. Yep. Um, when I was up there, it had reduced quite a bit, but now it's back up to about 300,000 hectares a year just in Queensland. Okay. But anyway, can I, can I just uh, state for the, for the benefit of the, the listeners, we must discriminate. Um, when Professor Brian's talking about um, revegetating and so on, um, we, we, and we're talking about beef production, basically, beef and sheep, um, the problem is that, that we... We look at Australia as a whole and we say, oh, we, yeah, red meat's bad. But the thing is we need to discriminate because um, th- th- there's two different industries in Australia, basically. That's northern beef production, north of the Queensland border, and there's southern beef production. And up in the north is where pretty much all of the deforestation happens. It's definitely where all of the savanna burning happens. And it's the poorest pastures. It's the rangelands that they they can't afford uh, fences and water points everywhere. So mm. it, it it gets flogged in the in the regular drought seasons, and all that rain runs all that the, the topsoil runs off into the Barrier Reef. The Burdekin and the Fitzroy catchments have, have seen a huge amount of clearing in the in past years, mm. and now after after Cyclone Debbie, that's all been whoosh out on the reef. So so we need to discriminate between. The beef industry north of the Queensland border, which is, by the way, 70% of Australia's beef production happens in the north, mm. and we need to discriminate against the, the beef industry in the south. But, but basically... What I the think you mean discriminate in favour of the beef... Don't you mean in favour of the beef industry in the south who are doing that rotational grazing and who are not so yeah. hard on the land? I think you mean that, don't you? Yes, exactly. So mm. if, we, if we look at the best bang for buck... Okay, where, if I was going to reduce the herd, the national herd, where would that be most effective? Definitely that would be most effective in the north, not in the south. So we need to look at the north first. If we can target the deforestation um, that's happening now, 300,000 hectares a year, and target that savannah burning, which is burning the, the, everything out of it every year, yeah. um, it, and it's just gone crazy because now we're, we're paying for it. Well, that we're was paying my, people to burn it every year. Yeah, that was my last question. The savannah burning, the BZE report says that we could, fa- if we factored in short-term gases over a 20-year period, we'd have transformational climate change mitigation opportunity, and yet we're paying through the Emissions Reduction Fund for people to do this savannah burning, which they say, their argument, I think, is that cool... Uh, winter burning, you know, burning off in the cool part of the year saves the carbon emissions of wild bushfires later on in the year. How, uh, how, what's yeah, your that, counter-argument to that? Uh, yeah, that, that's right. If, if you burn early in the dry season, yeah. you end up with about half the amount of emissions as if you burn late in the dry yeah. season. Well, I haven't been up there. I don't know. What, what do you think? 
Yeah, the problem is that the uh, you don't get the wildfires with anything like the regularity as you get just the human fires. Yeah. <laughs> they burn every year up there. They, they, it, and, and you've got these things like gamba grass now, which are just taking over, which 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 burn very very hot, and and it's it's wrecking the wildlife. It's really trashing the wildlife. But yeah. but if they didn't burn, I mean we're paying them now to burn every year. But if they didn't burn then the, the frequency of the wildfires is like five to ten years. It's not every year. So, um, it, and we actually, BZE, uh, we wrote a, a submission to the, the, the recent review of Australians um, uh, uh, um, looking at our emissions. Mm. Um, we said, look, it's, it's, it's creating a problem up there. We're burning more. And perversely, we're getting more emissions when we're trying to save emissions. Yeah. So it's not good. Yeah. Well, that yeah. Um, Seacom, Mike Seacom wrote an article called La La Land Management, and he talked about that with the huge amount of clearing, the little amount of carbon sequestration in Queensland it just balances out. It doesn't even balance out. It's a net loss and of carbon. And with the burning, that's um, not sufficient. He agreed with what you said. So, yeah. um, Gerard... Um, do you have any other other points? Like listeners, are, this might be a lot of new information for them. Uh, thinking about land management, one of the things you said is eat less red meat or don't eat it at all. But um, other are there other campaigns or uh, aspects of this? It's not doesn't come up in the same way as anti coal or anti coal seam gas. You know, we just leave the land sector alone and nobody ever says, "Well, we need to rethink this." What What do you think? Yeah, look, um, there are quite a few voices now, uh, such as Professor Bryan's, who are questioning our use, uh, particularly of Northern Australia. Um, the, 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 way we've, the way we've cleared our land for um, European-style agriculture, it's just not suitable. Yeah. Um, and for many years now, even pasture agronomist, there, there's an old retired, now retired pasture agronomist in Queensland called Greg McKeon, and he coined the term the hydroelogical cycle. Mm-hmm. And it goes something like this. It rains, the grass grows, it, it, you put the cattle out, they fatten up, um, you sell them, it, it, it's, the beef producers are happy. Um, you, you get a drought, um, and the price of... Uh, the price of beef goes down because there's a lot of cattle out there and therefore the, the producers keep the cattle on the land, they strip the land and then there's no more feed left so they get in bad bad conditions so they can't sell them. So we have way more cattle than, than we should have on the land and then, um, you know, crisis point, they get, uh, they get subsidies for drought uh, and so on and, mm. and we think we're doing the good thing by sending hay out west but it's absolutely rewarding them for doing the wrong thing. But uh, then the drought breaks. It rains, the grass grows. Um, But when it rains, these days it pours. And um, as I said before, the Burdick and the Fitzroy catchment and even the northern catchments, all the the pastures that have been flogged, and we we have this thing called the the fence line effect. You can tell the the family farmers, they have knee-high grass, to the corporate-owned farms, and they're just bare ground. So that... But that soil is rushed out, washed out in the barrier reef, and that's one of the biggest killers of the barrier reef is the fine sediment and the particulate nitrogen and phosphorus 
from grazing land, not oh, from okay. uh, sugar cane. Enough. Anyway, that's the hydro- Enough. hydrological cycle. Yes, yeah, so I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> but thank you very much for painting that picture because you've really been there and um, a lot of people are still trying to farm up there, but there's got to be some rethinking going on. And I hope we've participated by putting this program to air in some of the thinking getting a bit fast-forwarded and uh, more action happening. So thank you very much, Gerard. That was Gerard Wedderburn Bishop, and um, we're going to have a small break, and then we're going to speak to Gregory Miller. back to the Beyond Zero Emissions show listeners after that lovely music thank you to Andy for finding something so soothing our next guest is Gregory Miller. He's a film director, and you might have heard his um, talk, listeners, on Solidarity Breakfast last Saturday. He was talking about his film, Cultivating Murder. It was about land clearing in New South Wales. And as we've been talking about, the Beyond Zero Land Use Report recommends a cessation of land clearing, really just cessation, a stopping of land clearing, and then a net reforestation. This film shows the mindset we're up against. This is the human factor. What does it mean when you say we want to cease land clearing when you come against the people who are in Gregory's film? Thanks for coming on the Beyond Zero Mission show, Gregory. Tell us about that mindset. Yeah. Hello? Okay, well, I think it's... Uh, what, what? Can you hear me? Yes, again? I can. You speak up. We can hear you. Okay. Yeah, um, so I'm talking uh, on on mobile, so sorry for the reception. But no. yeah, look, our film um, is an opportunity, I think, to to get uh, to, to see the personal side of of what um, you know happens in uh, a large uh, farming environment, industrial farming um, mentality. Uh, when we get to see, uh, you know, the film affords an insight into some of the thinking behind that and where that maybe comes from and uh, what it, you know, what it, in this case, uh, is a tragic outcome, yeah. which is what happens, in what the film is about, which is about a murder. Um, but, uh, yeah, it does, we, we use the evidence, the court evidence from the court case, from the murder trial, as a way to, to find out something about the way that uh, one farmer in particular was thinking um, about land clearing, and this was a farmer 
uh, Ian Turnbull, uh, who was charged with murder and who was had undertaken quite a lot of land clearing and most of it was illegal. And he was convicted uh, of that uh, illegal land clearing uh, in another court, in the Land and Environment Court. Um, but the court that we go to is the murder trial and we hear his own voice, we hear him testify in the murder trial mm. and some of it we hear in the film as well. Because the judge released some of that um, telephone conversation, did he, to the media? Yes, that's right. The judge made available uh, material that was uh, presented in the court case to the media and so, yes, we're uh, able to use that in, uh, in, the, in the film. Yeah. Um, I, I had but, a feeling that what, he was very brutal. There was kind of a brutal attitude because even though they killed, he killed that man. He, a few days later, they were clearing again. They kept clearing. It was extremely, um, you know, bloody-minded. And I wondered, that's what we're up against, isn't it? A kind of entitlement among a small sector. It was emphasised at the film screening. You know, when you had a panel, it was emphasised. This is only a small group of people, but they're probably an elite of people, very wealthy, who who just feel they can um, thumb their nose at the law. That's uh, and not just thumb their nose at the law, but actually change the law and use that influence and power they have uh, at, at sort of high levels of politics um, to, to basically do what has happened in New South Wales. And the, um, the old Native Vegetation Act, which was, has only, is only 25 years old, odd, um, and was an act that had substantially reduced land clearing in the state, um, and was also the, also led to a, a lot of research being done by scientists and ecologists who, you know, have been able to study these areas uh, in great detail now and really understand a lot more about them, more than we've ever known before. And one of the conclusions they came to is that if you remove, you know, if, if you all you leave is 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 thirty percent of native vegetation in an area you're severely pr pressurized pressuring that that what's left to 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 be functional and what we're finding in some parts of new south wales and some parts of queensland and and in the past it's been parts of victoria as well um that uh, the clearing has gone on so that there's sometimes one percent uh sometimes ten percent left of native vegetation and this is grassland this is um, allowing insects to survive, birds to survive, um, and these are the these these are the creatures that allow um, you know the agriculture to go on as well. So it's a self-defeating process, short-sighted, mm. um, and you know that's really what we're facing now, and uh, it, it, it's a potentially disastrous scenario that we're looking at in New South Wales, particularly. Well, well yes, we uh, uh, these. I think uh, people call this ecosystem services, don't they? Like bees and um, keeping salinity down and, and rehydrating the landscape. I think ecosystem services, uh, carbon sequestration is another ecosystem service because it it, it prevents the worst of cl climate change. But um, you showed a different kind of farmer, the, not the 
big industrial scale, couldn't care less kind of farmer, but you showed a neighbouring farmer who had a koala sanctuary on her land, as well as I think it was quite a profitable cropping business. And I wondered, is that the model of sustainable farming balanced out with habitat for wildlife that you think we need to promote instead of this industrial agriculture? Yeah, well, exactly. And, and you know, Certainly there are a lot of farmers who are concerned about these issues now. They're, they're, the farmer that we have in the film, uh, the Andersons, Elaine and Lionel, uh, they, they've been on the land all their life. And not only that, they've been there for generations. So their families have been there. They've seen um, where it's gone in the past and what they're seeing now in the last... And it's really a frontier mentality because it's really the only the last 40-odd years that... Um, cropping has become such a big issue in that area um, and that's where really the, the last of the trees are, 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 are destroyed and to, to make way for you know, laser levelled ground to the horizon so that large machines can, can operate in, in that environment. Mm. So we have, yes, yeah, so in the film it's not just about um, the, the, the big end of uh, farming, the corporate and the, and the large scale. These people operate on what's considered quite a small farm, but unfortunately people like them are being pushed out and it's happening very fast now and it's something that won't be reversed. So we're really on the edge of something now. It's not something something that's just been going on for a long time. We are really on the edge of it and we really have to become aware that, um, that, that, that we need good legislation that's based on science that, um, that, that, that and the science that we've been able to gather that, that tells us how to, to what what good stewardship looks like in, yeah. in rural environments. You know, well, it's just... not about stopping farming; it's about. No good stewardship and understanding the land. Oh, yes, and with the long-term prospects of the country in view, and I don't want to depress listeners too much, and I'll just remind them that we're talking to Gregory Miller and his film, Cultivating Murder. You can look at their website, and there's quite a lot of action on that website where you can get involved. Also, the Australian Conservation Foundation, and they uh, they need no donations also because it was a crowd-funded film, but it's such a brilliant film, and it's on at Acme. 4 p.m. next Saturday, so Saturday the 20th of May. But just one last question, Gregory. Land clearing is set to double in New South Wales, according to a professor who resigned from the expert panel on this new biodiversity law. And I want to know, is the climate impact of clearing not visible to landowners, who are these ones who are pushing for more land clearing? Isn't it not visible to them, climate change? Well, to start off with, most of them probably don't even live in the area anymore. <laughs> um, you know, these farms are so big, they're managed by managers. And, and the managers often do, do, do see and do it, do see what's happening, but they can't do much about it. You know, their, their jobs are dependent on them doing what their bosses and the, the, the corporate, you know, the bosses uh, in the Gold Coast or in Sydney or in Melbourne tell them to do, or even overseas. So... I don't think they're really seeing the changes, but the people on the ground are, and people like the, the Andersons see it for themselves. And it's, uh, you know, it's not, it, 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 it's not just um, variations in seasons that they're seeing. They're seeing major changes happening in the way rain falls, in the way it falls locally, in where it falls. 
Um, and you know the intensity of storms, as some, as your earlier guest mentioned, these are all things that are happening out there. And uh, yeah, look, it's not about you know we shouldn't depress, we shouldn't get ourselves totally depressed, and that, that we should. And, and I think, pe- particularly people in um, urban areas, um, need to need to need to um, become aware of it and, uh, and sort of I think get engaged with. With the countryside, yeah. you know, I think what, one thing that really inspired me of the film was, uh, you know, going taking a drive out into the country, and uh, you look around and you see paddocks and you see some trees beside the road, but um, but going deeper into that, what does that landscape really mean, and what are you really looking at, and and that's what we have to be sort of thinking about. I would love those country people to know those sort of country people to know that city people really are very keen for them to succeed and for the worst of it to not happen. I mean, I'm very grateful to your film because I have no access to farm life or farmlands. I live in the city, so I really got a, quite an insight, especially into what's at play, what's at stake and how hard it must be in those towns where you, you feel like I spoke to someone else today, it's like the Wild West there, you know, you sort of fearful and uh, with the person who was prepared to murder uh, the the officer, the forestry officer, he was prepared to murder him um, that's really like the deep south that we see in the movies so thank you so much for your film and um, good luck with your uh, crowdfunding of your film and also I think on your website people can um, contact you to do local screenings, is that right? Yeah yeah, we're really keen to, to show the film as much as we can. We, we already have about 50 or 60 screenings lined up. Um, people can go to the website, they can send us a message and uh, tell us they want to do a screening in their area and uh, we'll send them the whole package and we can okay, help, so for, help, help promote it for them. Thank you. So that's Cultivating Murder. Thank you very much, Gregory Miller. And now we've just got time for the... Um, announcements of what to do listeners what's on and don't forget Radiothon is coming now the, f- <laughs> the first step to making a difference on climate change is getting informed and that you're listening to BZE community is a great start but unfortunately we can't cal- cover every single thing there's a new organisation called Climate for Change, which is a Melbourne-based charity whose aim it is, is to increase the amount of awareness surrounding climate change. This is real grassroots stuff. Now, how do you get involved with them? Best way to start is to log on to their website. That's www.climateforchange.org.au. Click the subscribe tab to sign to their newsletter, and it keeps you up to date with the news, events they hold, like movie nights and information ses- sessions. That's www.climateforchange.org.au and click the subscribes tab. Next up, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, today is the beginning of Stop Adani Week. Head to www.acf.org.au to sign up to ring your MP as part of a massive phone call action where political representatives will be called by thousands of angry voters to try and stop public funding of a billion dollars and prevent the coal mine that will be an environmental catastrophe. We have learnt on this program that once coal is dug up, it will be burnt, so we have to stop it at its source. So that's www.acf.org.au. Go to the events button under the community tab and do it from today to Friday. MPs don't work weekends. Surprise, surprise. 
Now, if you're starting to get exhausted with all the political activism and need something artsy and soothing, head out to Coonahan Gallery in Brunswick to the Flow Exhibition, which explores ice and water. How is it at once ultimately uh, fluid to suit the shape of everything it runs over, yet so powerful to cut through rock over eons. Water is a topic close to the heart of any climate change advocate. It works. Uh, it has works by Colin Boyle, Clara Brack, Garth Henderson, and tons of other artists. Cunahan Gallery is 233 Sydney Road, Brunswick. To get more information, the best way is to head to their Facebook group. Type in Cunahan Gallery, Brunswick. Finally, a really great action happens every Monday at the Friends of the Earth. This will be finding out from the community, that's you, how Daniel Andrews' government can best spend its climate budget and help us all make the transition to a safe climate. Now, they meet at 6.30pm every Monday, so the trans... Uh, to, to transition so if you race there right after the show you can see it and that's at 312 Smith Street Collingwood to find out more head to www.melbournefoe.org.au we'll hope to see you there thanks to our guests tonight to Viv for her terrific interviews for Andy uh, working the desk I'm Kurt Johnson and this was BZE Community Show Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings, and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.